Easter Sunday. I don't know about you, but I like comeback stories. People who had a difficult thing, but then made a huge comeback, a turnaround. Let me uh, give you a couple examples. Maybe you are familiar with the story of Jim Morris. It was made into a movie called The Rookie. Been out for a while, but a cool story. Maybe you didn't know, it's actually based on a true story. Jim Morris was a pretty talented left-handed pitcher, and he spent a year and a half in the minor leagues, but then he blew out um, his arm, and he thought his career was pretty much over. And over a decade, he was teaching um, or coaching Little League and also some high school baseball. He was in West Texas, and his team one year, when they saw him throw, they're like, hey, coach, we think you still have a great arm. You should try out. And he thought, well, this could be a point of leverage. You're thinking, you try out for the major leagues. He goes, well, I'll tell you what. You work hard, and you make the states, and then I'll try out for professional baseball. Well, not only does his team make it to state, they won state, and so he now had to keep his end of the bargain. And he knew some people who worked with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, and so he asked for the opportunity to try out, and he shows up, and he starts throwing, and they had one of those speed guns on him. He threw 98 miles an hour. Somehow when they repaired that arm, they did a better than normal job, and all of a sudden, he was throwing hard, and they're like, yeah, you can come and be a part of our system, and eventually he even made it to the major leagues. Here is uh, the video of the first batter that he faced in his mid 30s, which by the way in baseball terms is ancient, but he finally made it there after all those years, and it is an incredible comeback story. Let me share another one with you. I like this one even more. It is from the AFC wildcard playoff game in 1993, and the Houston Oilers were beating the Buffalo Bills 35-3. to They just referred to this game as the comeback. It's in the third quarter, and it's a blowout. In comes a guy named Frank Reich. He's the backup quarterback for the Bills, and he leads this incredible comeback. Here is the final score, 41 to 38 in overtime. In fact, the Buffalo Bills went on to play in the Super Bowl where they got spanked by the Dallas Cowboys. Just saying. <laughs> Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. Here is probably, though, my favorite story of all uh, in terms of comeback. It's a young man named Jason McElwain, high school student, autistic. And he tried out for the basketball team. He wasn't a great player, but they put him on the team all season. He didn't play a minute. And he would be the team manager. He was sitting on the end of the bench. But in the last game of the season, his team is losing, and the coach thinks, well, what do we have to lose? Let's get him in there. He's been so good and faithful and hardworking all this time. Let's put him in. Well, he throws up an air ball at first, but then he goes to work, and he squishes a three-pointer. Everybody is going crazy there in their home gym. His team is cheering him on, but he's not done yet. He starts hoisting up three-pointers. There's less than five minutes left in the game. All of a sudden, he can't miss. And in less than five minutes, he becomes the high scorer of the game, scoring 20 points and leads his team back to victory. The ultimate comeback story, though, is what we're going to talk about today, and that is Easter. Because as incredible as those are, this day is about somebody who came back from the dead. Now, 
again, I think that there are two groups of people who are here today. People who have journeyed with that for a while, and I would put myself in that category. Right, we talk about as a Super Bowl of faith today, and there have been 50-some Super Bowls, and maybe for you this is 50-some Easter Sundays, and the story is familiar, and you kind of know how it ends, and maybe it's just another day. And I hope that you and I, if you're in that category with me, we can recapture some of the wonder. But I also think that maybe here today, we've got some skeptics. And you're new to this, or maybe you've heard it before, but you're like, you know, that just sounds too incredible to believe. And I would just suggest this to you. You are not alone in that skepticism. That there have been many who have said, yeah, you know what? That's a great story, but how do we know that that is actually true? How do we know that it wasn't just made up and became this myth, this legend that took on momentum over time? And how do we even know well, there are four accounts of the life and times of Jesus. We're going to be in Mark's gospel today. I believe that Mark recorded the story, if you're a skeptic, with you in mind. Because I think he knew that people are going to find this a hard story to believe. But let me tell you, we're not just talking about an idea. We're not talking about a myth. We're talking about something that actually happened. And like all comeback stories, this one begins with a hard moment. Jesus is nailed to a Roman cross, and it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He was dead. His life was over. And look at how Mark goes out of his way to help us understand, hey, don't just take my word for this. There were also women there looking from a distance. Now, we may say, why is he specific about women? Where are his disciples that walk with him for three years? You know where they are? They're hiding in an upper room, afraid that they're going to be the next ones nailed to a Roman cross. So they are gone, and they're trying to be under the radar. But there's some courageous women who are there. They're looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. And do you notice how specific Mark is? He's not saying, hey, yeah, there were a bunch of people there. Just take my word for it. He's saying, this is who they were. And he gives us some identifiers of who they are. And perhaps even beginning to build this case. Hey, you don't have to just believe me. There are eyewitnesses of what happened on that day. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, here's another one, a respected member of the council, so we can connect the dots. You want to find him? That's where he works. Who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, this is somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight at this moment. But he goes to the official, says, can I have the corpse of Jesus? Because he's going to lay him to rest in his own tomb. Well, there is a political leader. His name is Pilate. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should, Jesus, should have already died. And summoning the centurion. Centurion is a Roman soldier who is experienced at crucifying people that were nailed to crosses. And sometimes we think that we're so much smarter all these years later but people 2,000 years ago knew what death was. They knew when somebody was dead or alive. And the centurion knew that Jesus was dead. He, Pilate, asked him, the centurion, whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the, what's the next word? Corpse to Joseph. 
So the official stamp is made. This guy, Jesus, is dead. He has been executed by the Romans under their authority. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So not only are there eyewitnesses of the death, now there are eyewitnesses of the burial. And it's not just Joseph of Arimathea who's also there. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And John, or John, Mark is now building this case a number of eyewitnesses saw these events. Don't just take my word for it. But that's not how the story ends. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Back then, they didn't embalm bodies, but they would anoint a dead body with these spices. That's what these ladies are going to do, to take care of a dead body. But again, we might ask the question, Mark, you just mentioned them a few verses ago. Why are you mentioning these ladies one more time? We get it. They were there three times in eight verses. Mark records the names of witnesses. And we might ask the question, why is that? Well, one man who is an expert in ancient civilizations, his name is Richard Bauckham of Cambridge University in England, said this is a way of Mark letting us know he is recording a historical account, not a legend. The repeated names of the women here are source citations. We would call them footnotes. It's as if Mark is saying, hey, I'm not making up a story here. This really happened, and let me give you some opportunities to go and ask some people for yourself if you're not so sure. Fact check me on this. This actually happened. Now, Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. Most scholars agree that the Gospel of Mark was written in 66 AD. This is not 1966. And many times we think a lot of time went by before they wrote these accounts. 33 years went by. Not all that much. In our context from 2023, where we are today, that would take us back to 1990. Let me do a little bit of a survey here by show of hands. How many people here in this room were eyewitnesses to 1990? In other words, you were alive and well at church. You got to be honest. Come on, raise your hand if you're over 33 years old. And and this is Mark basically saying, hey, look, if you don't believe me, there's a whole bunch of people who saw this happen. Let me share a couple things that happened in 1990. And if you're not 33 years old, um, you know, let me put it to the, the way that kind of marked it. In 1990, the Berlin Wall came down. You don't believe me? Ask Bob of Eden. And he's a Delta pilot, and you can go ask him. And you know what else was told to us for the first time back in 1990? There's an information superhighway coming. They're going to call it the World Wide Web. And let's see if this goes anywhere. And if you don't believe me, ask Susan of South Ogden. And she works down, you know, at the city council. 1990, the Cincinnati Reds won the World Series. I know that's incredible because they've only won like eight games since then. But if you don't believe me, ask Phil of Layton, you know, and he works for the fire department. Ask him for yourself. That's the way that Mark portrays this story. And what else we know about what he says is, right, a lot of the eyewitnesses were women. 
To us, that doesn't make a lot of difference one way or the other, but it did back then. 2,000 years ago in that culture, the eyewitness testimony of women, for the most part, was not even allowed in a court of law. They were considered unreliable witnesses. So Mark, if you're building this case and you are putting together some kind of story, would you, you know, appeal to people that would not even be trusted in that culture? Why would you tell it this way? Well, maybe because that's the way that it happened. And Mark's just telling the story the way that it is. But for people back then, just to show you one indication, it was sort of a mark against the story that a large group of the eyewitnesses were women. There's a Roman historian. He was also a critic of Christianity, of faith in Jesus. His name was Celsus. And he said, Christianity is based on the testimony of, quote, hysterical women. Oh, Celsus, not cool, dude. Not cool. But that was the thinking back then. So, Mark, why would you write the story that way? Because that's how it happened. And if you don't believe me, Go and ask the people that I've identified. Ask them for yourself. And very early on the first day of the week, now we're on Easter Sunday morning. When the sun had risen, they, the women, went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. And see the place where they have laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus said, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be tortured and I will be crucified, but I will rise again from the dead. And if there was a moment in which the people who were walking with Jesus would have said, I knew it. And early on Sunday, Easter morning, we should go down to the tomb because Jesus said he was going to do what he was going to do. And so let's count it down. Five, four, three, two, one. Here comes Jesus. High five the followers. Put somebody in charge and this Jesus thing is just going to take off. But that's not what happens. Nobody is saying, I knew it. In fact, look at the reaction of what happened in that moment when they heard the news. And they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment, that can also be translated bewilderment, had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Why were they trembling and astonished and afraid? Because they weren't expecting it. Because they were real people just like us who had a hard time grasping all of this. And if you were going to create a story, a myth, a legend, that you would invite other people to join, would you tell it this way? Yeah, pretty much right up to the last minute, we were arguing about which one of us was the greatest. We thought it was ultimately going to be good for us. But then the whole thing went south, and when Jesus needed us the most, we took off and ran and hid, and we were scared. A bunch of women, they were courageous. They saw him die. They saw him laid to rest. But when they were told the news that he had risen from the dead, they were afraid and trembling. Do you want to come and follow with us? We're awesome, aren't we? 
And yet that's the story as it unfolded. Why would you tell it that way? Because that's how it happened. But here's what we need to understand on that first Easter Sunday morning. That from the perspective of everybody who had been with Jesus, nobody expected nobody to be in the tomb. They thought it was over. That it had ended badly. And that all that they thought was going to become the result of walking with Jesus was not true. But then there's an incredible turnaround. And just days later, not decades, not centuries later, those same people who were afraid and trembling and hiding in an upper room flood the streets of Jerusalem first and then they go beyond that. And you know what they're telling people? Yeah, Jesus was crucified, but he has risen from the dead and our hope is in him. And the ones who were afraid and trembling are now afraid of no one and nothing. And with one exception, they even paid for that with their lives. Something happened. Not a philosophy, not a different way to look at, you know, the problems of your life. Something happened. The entire New Testament is really filled with accounts and descriptions and really the implications of what it means to follow a Jesus who was raised from the dead. And we don't have time to look at all of it, but here's one example um, of what they said to some leaders who bring them in and they tell them, stop talking about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And you can do to us whatever you want to do, but we're going to talk about that, what we have seen and heard. So let me ask you this question. That's great for them, but what if you believe the resurrection is true? What difference does it make? What is the so what? We may think, well, even if that happened to Jesus, what does that have to do with me? And I would submit to you, it has everything to do with you and me. And it's talked about over and over again in the New Testament here in 1 Corinthians. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has What's the next word? Begun. Begun. It wasn't a one and done. It has now begun something that is still unfolding. The resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. So here we live in a world that is often broken, where we get to some dark places and we experience the loss of loved ones and we see tragedies happen. And this boggles my mind, but there are kids all around us who don't have enough to eat every week? Are you kidding me? And we see abuse and we see hurt and we see relationships and marriages end. We see families sometimes torn apart and struggling. And why is that so hard to face? And I wonder if maybe we struggle with that because we might conclude, well, this broken world is all we got and it's all that we'll ever have. But what Apostle Paul's telling us here if you think that this broken world is all we've got, the resurrection says, no, it's not. 
that there is more to come and also what happened there has begun to unfold what God is doing and there is hope in the broken world and there is hope in all that is to come as well. And it makes all the difference in the world. Let me give you one example of that. Maybe you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was a 17-year-old young lady, she had a diving accident, broke her neck, and she became a quadriplegic. She was a follower of Jesus and has continued to follow Jesus. And in the church that she attends, there's a regular part of the service where they will invite people to get on their knees to pray. Well, how do you pray when you are a quadriplegic on your knees? You can't. And she wrote about that and the difference the resurrection makes. She says, I continued weeping at another thought. I remembered that in the new heaven, I will be free to jump, dance, kick. But the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees and quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone like me? that this broken world is not all that we have. So we can live here and now with a hope and a confidence that's not tied to ideas of looking at a different, more positive way at our problems. It's tied to something that really happened. It's tied to an event, something that is real and something that is true. There's a painting that is entitled Checkmate. And this painting was painted several hundred years ago and it portrays Satan on the left and a very distraught young man over on the right. They're playing chess, kind of the chess game of your life. And the title of this painting is Checkmate. The idea is game over, you lost, and the consequences of that are huge. And for about 100 years, people would look at that and they'd ponder that and what all of that means. One day, there was an international chess champion. His name is Paul Morphy. He comes and he looks at this painting and he stares at it for a while. Then he kind of looks at it again and looks at it from another perspective. And finally, he turns to the people that he's there with and he says, well, they're going to have to do one of two things. They're either going to have to change the title of the painting or they're going to have to change the painting itself. Because the king still has one more move. It's not game over. It's not checkmate. And I would submit to you, that is the story of Easter. The king of kings still has one more move. And on Easter Sunday morning, everybody who was with Jesus thought, that's it, game over, checkmate. We lost and Jesus lost but the king still has one more move. And what that means is that the difficulty that we encounter in this broken world of ours is not the final word. The king still has one more move. That there's another day coming and he will have the final word. And if in your own life and whatever it is that you encounter now or you encounter in the future and you think that's it, game over, checkmate, know this, the king still has one more move. And it was something that actually happened. It is tied to an event. I think this has real implications for us. I'll just share a bit of my own journey in this calendar year here. I've been missing somebody in my life. 
We worked together for 18 years. His name was Sam. And Sam and I worked together really well, but you know what? It went beyond that. Sam and I were friends. And Sam was a good friend, and, you know, we had a lot of things in common. In fact, I only found one flaw in Sam over the years. He was a lifelong fan of the New York Yankees, and, you know, that's pretty bad. Um, But, hey, nobody's perfect. And I'm a fan of the other New York team that doesn't win a lot of championships. And so we would bicker and banter and debate baseball a lot. Sometimes in staff meetings, we would be going back and forth at each other so hard, people thought we were actually fighting. And a couple of, whoa, 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 calm down, guys. We'd be like, we're having fun right now. Don't take away our fun. Well, Sam got cancer and fought that for a decade. But it got worse and worse, and cancer can be really cruel. And at the end, it was hard. And to see him try to eat and not even be able to swallow. And he was in the office on a Thursday. He passed away that next Sunday. And in January, we passed the one-year mark of that. And as I was just thinking about that and missing a friend, this and getting ready for today made a difference for me. Because here's what it means. That because Sam put his hope and his trust in the king of kings, (laughs) and because of what Jesus did and how that has begun to unravel what God is doing, that will one day result in there being no more sadness and no more darkness and no more tears and no more tragedies and no more losses and no more bad endings. It means that Sam is not just a part of my past, he's also a part of my future. And so there is the ability to live with confidence here and now because death does not have the final word. Cancer does not have the final word. Loss does not have the final word. The king still has one more move. And when we belong to him, His final word will be life. Life together with him. That's the difference that Easter makes. And it's not just good thoughts and good vibes. It's tied to something that actually happened. To an event. And the king still has one more move. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads together with me. And just before we pray, I'm going to give you that opportunity to take that step of faith and trust. To put your trust in Jesus, 100% in Him, 0% in yourself or anyone else. And if you'd like to do that, you can just express that to God in your heart. And you could say something like this. There are no magic words. Lord Jesus, I believe that you came into this broken world to die for my sins so that I could be forgiven. I believe you rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death. And I put my trust in you. And maybe I'm a little bit astonished and bewildered and afraid of all that that means, but I want to follow you 
because of your great love for me. And so God, I put my trust in you. Help me to follow you every day and to more and more understand all the implications of what that means. That I can live in a world like this one, but I have hope and confidence. It's found not just in ideas, but it's found in what you have done, the work that you have accomplished. And Lord Jesus, thank you that we can pray prayers like that anytime, anywhere. And that in that moment, a sincere heart belongs to you and it's all you're doing. It's who you are and it's grace all along the way. And thank you for your great love for us. And so God, be with each and every one of us and God, for those of us who have journeyed with you across decades. May we have a renewed sense of what it means to belong to you and the difference that you make on each and every day of our lives here. And give us a great sense of anticipation of what is to come. And God, may it all be to your honor and glory. And we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.